All right, let's go 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Or no, not chapter 1, chapter 4. It's been a long month and a half, guys. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we will put the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, if you're watching us online right now, we'll put the text up on your screen when we get to that point. If you don't own a Bible, don't have one that you can call your very own, uh, we would actually love to, to fix that. Uh, we would love to give you a Bible. Um, we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. Uh, we want you to know God. We want everything in you, about you, and around you to be defined by Him, shaped by Him, uh, estimated its value by Him, all of those things. And if the Word is what he uses to get you there, then it's advantageous for us to be putting Bibles in people's hands and, you know, figuring out creative ways for people to read it more often. And so if you don't have a Bible of your very own, uh, let me know. We can fix that pretty quickly. First um, Corinthians chapter 1. So we're walking our way through a longer series through uh, the letter that we call 1 Corinthians, the book of, that we call 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to cover all of chapter 4 today. Uh, we'll just knock it out of one felt swoop. Uh, and then actually we're going to shut things down for a while. Uh, this will be our last week in Corinthians for a couple of months. Uh, we're going to focus on some more seasonal efforts uh, after this. Uh, we got some plans for next week and all through December and into January and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so the letter that we call 1 Corinthians um, is is... It's this special letter that, that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, to a church that he loved dearly. It's a part of or a piece of a larger dialogue, uh, a back and forth dialogue between him and a church in Corinth, Greece during the first century, of mid first century, somewhere between 53 and 55 AD, we think. And so it's this longer back and forth dialogue through letters uh, of dealing with some problems. Uh, and, and so the letter that we call 1 Corinthians, the, it's probably the second letter that Paul wrote to them. It's complicated, but we call it 1 Corinthians because we like naming things weird things. All right? um, but uh, the letter that we call 1 Corinthians, it pushes pretty heavily on differentiating between the kingdoms of the world and the upside-down reality of God's kingdom. That, that's the pathway that it takes. That's, that's what it's trying to, to hammer home. And Corinth was a city that Paul knew really, really well. Uh, he had spent about a year and a half there, we believe, or at least we're told that, uh, starting the church in Corinth. And, and so uh, he, he knew Corinth well. He knew the people of Corinth. He knew the politics of Corinth. He knew the, the values and the virtues of Corinth. And he also knew exactly what the idols were. All right? You spend enough time in a city, you start to get a feel for those things, especially when you look at it with a, with a critical eye. And so over and over again throughout this letter, Paul lovingly challenges those idols, and he, he calls God's people to to see themselves and to see the world in a dramatically different way. A very different way. And it's, it's a way that will likely strike them as backwards. Strike them as maybe awkward or, or unwise, maybe even contemptible. Some might even use the word foolish. It's definitely upside down, but the, but the obvious question that, that arises out of that reality is, is that some kind of cosmic accident or do you think it's on purpose, right? Did God slip up and, you know, in his grand plan to undo the curse of the fall? And did he zig when he should have zagged, right? It, it, don't, we, don't we normally think of God doing that kind of thing? Or maybe, maybe I'm the, the only one? Obviously not. Is God struggling to come up with a plan for our salvation that, that can keep up with the ever-evolving cultures around us? Or, or do you think maybe his plan is upside down for a reason? Are we going to go with option B? In other words, is, he, is God on the wrong side of history here? Is he actually smarter than all of us? 
Is he doing something that despite our ability or inability to comprehend it in this moment, is he doing something that's going to end up blowing all of our minds? I think it's the second option. So over and over and over again throughout this letter, Paul wades into the nonsense that is the culture of Corinth and the, the Christians that are living there and operating there. And, and, and he wades into the nonsense of what the Corinthians so desperately wanted to present about themselves, desperately wanted to be true about themselves and to, to be known by and to be seen as. He wades into that and instead he calls them to repent and run the other direction. That's his aim. And that other direction very, may very well be misunderstood by those outside of the kingdom watching this play out. In fact, you can probably count on that reality. You can probably count on it being misunderstood. The people walking in darkness don't merely reject the light. They mock the light all the time. That's what they do. So it, it may very well be you know, misunderstood by those outside the kingdom, and it may very well be something that you struggle to make sense of. To, you struggle to, to give yourself over to completely. Newsflash, upside down things feel upside down, right? Anybody like being turned upside? Anybody have one of those weird back straightener things that they flip you over? Is that a good feeling? The question that we've been disciplining ourselves to ask throughout this, this letter is, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, it's awkward, but is it beautiful? Is it beautiful? Is it, is it good? Is it true? Does it, does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? And if the answer to those questions are yes, well, well then the awkwardness of upside down, it's really nothing more than a temporary season that we need to get over. It's, it's a brief moment of acclimation as you're introduced to a better world. A hurdle we can jump over and just keep running. And so, so Paul has has walked them through the on-purpose realities of a foolish cross, right? Looked at that a few weeks ago. He's walked them through uh, the, the backwards and, and, and seemingly unwise necessity of uh, the Spirit's need to reveal instead of our ability to, to figure things out and our own wisdom to achieve. And, and then last week we watched him call out their immaturity, right? He, he pointed to their jealousy and to their strife and to the divisions that, that are playing out amongst them. And he says, hey, divisions all are, your immaturity always fleshes itself out in this way. It's always going to produce jealousy and strife. It's always going to produce uh, divisions. And, and Paul finished up chapter three by calling the Corinthians there the Christians in Corinth, to, to have an honest assessment of themselves. Do you remember that? He says in, in verse 18 of chapter 3, let no one deceive himself. If anyone thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. And, and Paul's point there is to say that, that the smartest thing for people to do, the, the wisest, smartest, most intelligent thing that you can do in that moment is to lay down all of your attempts to, to continue to exalt yourself and make much of yourself through human wisdom and through human scheming and instead to let God be the one who wants to make a big deal out of you if he wants to. That was his point. Anybody find that easy to do? I feel like I got more fight than the next guy. And so even though giving up those efforts feels upside down to us, the reality, the reality is that we always end up getting more back in return. When we finally give in to that, to God's plan, Paul says all things are ours. We don't have to pick between Team Paul or Team Apollos or Team fill in the blank. I like Team Stephen. Team Stephen sounds awesome. We have to pick between those teams. We, 
those guys all belong to Jesus, and we belong to Jesus, and Je- Team Jesus is a whole lot better team. They're going to go a lot further in the in this season. But that was chapter 3. You ready to see where Paul takes it in chapter 4? 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, tip the cards a little bit for this week. Um, a lot of sarcasm today. <laughs> and if it's your love language, like it's my love language, you're going to enjoy the ride. So, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says this. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So regardless of of, the jealousy and regardless of the strife and the divisions that, that characterize the posture in Corinth, there is an incredibly clear answer as to how leaders ought to be regarded, as they ought to be seen. And the answer there is as stewards. As caretakers, we could say. Stewards are placed in charge of things, right? That's how a steward works, right? We don't really use that word much in our culture anymore, but that's definitely what it means. A steward is somebody who's been placed in charge of something, but they don't own that something. In fact, they're owners of nothing. Nothing actually belongs to them, but they are entrusted with incredible responsibility, right? That's what it means to be a steward. You don't own the thing, but it's your job to take care of the thing. It's also true that stewards will be held accountable for how they handled what was entrusted to them, right? If a steward doesn't think that they're going to be held accountable for that, it usually goes bad, right? You can't trust a steward that doesn't think that they're going to have to stand and give an account. You want that steward to to be aware of the fact that, that one day they're going to have to stand in front of the actual owner and tell how things went, right? The level of trust they were given is going to affect the scrutiny by which they are judged by. I think it's also an indicator of the value of the kind of things that typically get placed in stewards' hands. Paul wasn't tasked with stewarding just any old thing, right? What's he entrusted with? The mysteries of God. <laughs> we talked about this a, at length a couple weeks ago, but whenever the Bible drops the word mysteries like that, it's, it's, it's not using it the way that you and I tend to use that word. We, when we speak of a mystery, we're talking about something that can't be understood, that, that's out there beyond us it's too big we don't have all the facts available to us it's beyond our level of understanding but when the bible uses the word mystery like this it's speaking to something that was once unknowable but is now being revealed it's being made known by the one who does have all the facts by the one who does have the proper level of understanding and so so what are these grand mysteries that paul's talking about what are these grand mysteries that, that God seems to want to entrust to guys like Paul? Well, the short answer is the gospel, right? You want a more nuanced answer, you want to drill down deeper, you could probably be more specific and say the folly of the cross. The folly of the cross. Paul tells the Corinthian church that, that he is a steward of a specific message and he intends to carry that message where his owner, the boss, told him to go. He intends to carry that message faithfully because he will one day have to stand and give an account for how he handled what was entrusted to him. He will stand and give an account for how he carried the duty that was assigned. He doesn't have the authority to change the message or to modernize the message. His job is to deliver the message. If you haven't put the pieces together yet, that responsibility is no different than any church leader today. Right? 
the clear answer as to how faithful leaders are to be regarded is as stewards, caretakers. We are entrusted with the same mystery of God, a revealed gospel, the folly of the cross, and it is our job to deliver that message faithfully. So whether God has called you to press into this church family or somewhere else in another church family, this is the standard that you ought to judge your church leaders by. Faithfulness to proclaim. Oh, yeah, I, I know, but I mean, there's other things that are important too, right? Like, like I really like his teaching style. He's so good with the, with the young folks. That might very well be true, but th- those aren't unimportant things, but the Bible would, I think, would call you to carry the attitude of faithfully proclaiming the gospel or bust. Right? There are a number of incredibly valuable things on the second tier of importance for church leaders, but there's only one thing that exists on the first tier. Only one. Paul calls himself a servant and a steward. But here's a question. Is that how the Corinthian church currently sees him? Not even close. Look at verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So the master is the one who is ultimately responsible for judging the stewards, right? And, and that makes a ton of sense, right? If you're doing the math in your head, like, 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 obviously, yeah. But what does that not mean then? It means that it's not the job of the other stewards, right? If the master is the one who judges the stewards, that means... The other stewards don't play a role in that. So, didn't, didn't we just talk about rightfully judging leaders? Didn't, didn't that create a little awkward contradiction for us? Didn't we just right, talk about rightfully judging leaders according to their faithfulness to proclaim the gospel? The answer is yeah. And so, either Paul has contradicted himself before he even finished the paragraph, Or, maybe there's another layer to this we need to see, right? It's kind of like Jesus telling people not to judge in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, and then telling you to get all judgy about wolves and sheep's clothing a couple paragraphs later. Anybody remember that part? You think Jesus is contradicting himself there? Anybody brave enough to go there? No, you're not brave enough? I'm not brave enough either. So what's going on then? Well, I think there's a really big difference between continuing to follow the leadership of someone and continuing to partner with someone who has shown themselves time and time again to be a faithless steward. I think there's a difference between that and what we see here, usurping the responsibility to judge, like what's going on in Corinth. I use that word usurping for a reason. Like like a lot of things in life, I think motive matters. Have Have you noticed this about life? There, there are a lot of things in life, and it's not true for everything, but there are a lot of things in life that motive 
seriously matters. Trying to assess faithfulness is worlds apart from trying to act like the master. Right? Paul knows them well enough to see this posture fleshing itself out in the Corinthian church, and so he calls them on it, right? He lovingly presses in and he speaks to the the issue at play here. Whether you're rightly judging, though, or you're wrongly judging, Paul has some other things to say because he doesn't seem too worried about their assessment of him, right? It's a little thing, he calls it. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. He kind of sloughs them off, right? Paul doesn't seem to care what they think in their immaturity critique. Paul, Paul loves them. I mean, that's obvious, right? We've seen over and over again throughout this letter now that, that, that he's burdened for them, that he's heartbroken over their immaturity, but, but he's also not really staying up too late worrying about their immature critique, right? He's, he's not going to lose too much sleep over the fact that, that they don't get it yet. He's not aware of any shortcomings of his own. And last time he checked, God hadn't stepped in. The actual master hadn't stepped in to give his judgment of the situation yet. And so, you know, it's probably not, it's probably best not to jump to too many conclusions yet, right? That's his point. And I'm sure that those who believe that they are wise down in Corinth are, are, are probably very expansive in their research. And I'm sure that they're going through everything with a fine-tooth comb. But, but when God is ready to judge, when He's ready to step in and bring His judgment, He's going to bring everything to light, even the hidden motives of the heart. He doesn't need the Corinthians' help. He's okay. He can handle it with, without their effort. What's going on down in Corinth? Bush League. God will handle it in his own way. On the day that God steps in to judge, those who deserve correction, hear me, will receive correction. And those who might deserve commendation will receive their proper commendation. He won't get the wires crossed. Everyone will get what they deserve. And so Paul's Seems like he's just going to continue walking faithfully and rest easy until that day actually gets here. He won't concern himself too much with those who still need to be bottle-fed, have to think about things. So look at verse 6. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So over the last seven-ish weeks now, we've seen Paul either directly quote or allude to the Old Testament, uh, right? Uh, We've seen him quote this and quote that and and bring in uh, Old Testament vocabulary and allusions here and there. Uh, But what you may not have noticed, though, is that all those quotes and allusions, they all carry a consistent theme. Have you picked up the, the, the breadcrumbs on that one? The consistent theme is this, human wisdom might be impressive to your neighbors, but it is tragically insufficient in God's kingdom. That's his point. He continues to quote, and he continues to allude, and every time, that's his point. Human wisdom might really be impressive to those around you, but it is woefully short, it is tragically insufficient to those, to to God's kingdom. But not merely insufficient. It's actually more deadly than that because it's a trap that God will use ultimately to undo his enemies and to exalt himself. And so speaking to a culture, 
that still desperately clung to that human wisdom. They fought for it with everything in their power. Paul reminds them that God is good and loving enough to give them guardrails for this stuff. Hey, church family, what's the clear answer as to where to find godly wisdom? Bible. Paul says, I'm waiting for you to learn not to go beyond what has been written. Stick to what God has seen fit to reveal to you through his word. And and when you finally figure out that little lesson, I think you're going to find that you won't be so puffed up against one another. Now, does that mean that valuable wisdom doesn't exist outside of the Bible? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Doesn't mean that one bit. In fact, I think this is a major point of, of theological discussion and argument uh, during the time period that we call the Protestant Reformations. The, uh, as the reformers were challenging the, the claimed authority of the Pope and the magisterium of the church, the, the, the common refrain that, that began to, to ring out and, and be, uh, uh, to, to emerge in, in culture and to emerge in all these arguments was that of sola scriptura, right? It's Latin for scripture alone. Sola scriptura, sola scriptura. And that's a convincing little soundbite, right? Scripture alone. The, the, the problem, though, is that soundbites don't ever really get you anywhere of substance. You eventually have to figure out what sola scripture actually means, right? And so the reformers taught that the Bible stands in authority over all other authorities. It doesn't negate authority found in other places. It just supersedes it. Other authorities don't cease being authorities. They just take a back seat to God's word. And I think we can apply the same exact logic to human wisdom. Wisdom exists all over the place. Some of it's really good. Some of it's really valuable. Some of it has been used to accomplish incredibly wonderful things in our world. But the moment that human wisdom begins to diverge from what God has said, which wisdom you choose actually matters in that moment. Which wisdom you grant authority to and see as authoritative, it matters tremendously. And this is yet another in a long list of realities we've seen about the upside-down nature of God's kingdom, right? I keep telling you, we're going to see this over and over and over again throughout this letter. This is another one to add to the list. There are a lot of people, a whole bunch of people in our world who, would, who are very okay, very comfortable le- allowing God's word to be a voice of authority in their hearts and lives. It's hard to find people who, who would disagree with that even. Sure, yeah. Yeah, let, it's a great voice. And they'll let God speak to this, and they'll let God speak to that. But the moment that God's word asserts itself as the voice of authority, the voice of wisdom, a lot of people think it's time to throw hands. Right? How dare you try to say such and such? How dare you try to tell me to do so and so? And we could call it for what it really is, idolatry. Paul, though, says it a little gentler than that. He says, he calls them puffed up, right? And then he asks them a bunch of rhetorical questions in verse 7 to reveal that puffed upness. He says, hey, Corinth, do you, do you see anybody around here that has a different assessment of you? I mean, do you, do you see anybody around here that's, that's disagreeing with me on this? Do you, do you, have you noticed that yet? Is there any actual wisdom that you can point to and claim for yourself right now? Or if so, where do you think that came from? 
that wisdom that you call yours, how do you think it got there? You think that, that came to you on your own, or, or was it a gift from someone else? And if it was a gift, what exactly are you boasting in right now? It doesn't ultimately belong to you. You're borrowing it. I know that we seem to talk about this every single week, but this is because it was a core level misunderstanding in the Corinthian church. They thought that they thought that the good things that they saw around them, their abilities and their opportunities, their gifts, their blessings from God, they, saw, they thought that, the, that all of the good things that they saw around them were because of how awesome they were. They'd see something good and they'd be proud of themselves for. They saw those things as something that they had earned and something that they had accomplished, something that they had achieved. And, and, and this entitled sense of themselves, it led to division and it led to other to their unfair critique of Paul, and I think it was going to lead to their ultimate downfall as a church. It would lead to their demise. That little kernel of pride, man, it wrecks everything. It wrecks everything. And I know that we've said it over and over again throughout the series so far, but, but this is really a rubber-meets-the-road kind of moment. We're not Corinth. We don't have their problems. We're a lot healthier than, than their church at the time of them receiving this letter, but you don't have to look like Corinth to fall victim to this. You don't. Successful churches fall victim to this kind of thing every day. If we look around here at anything, whether it's the quality of our building or our membership role or the programs we offer, or maybe, maybe it's something more intangible like how authentic our worship team feels. If we look around here at anything and we allow the belief to creep in that we're the ones who pulled it off, we're the ones who earned it, we're the ones who have accomplished something awesome, we're just as guilty as Corinth was. And I think we have the potential of setting ourselves up for just as big of a failure. Why do you boast of that which you did not receive, Paul says. Like he said back in chapter 1, consider your calling, brothers. I, I'll be real honest with you. There, there are times when I, when under my breath, I ask God not to allow growth here. I know that's a crazy thing for the pastor to say. There are times when I, I just calmly, God, would you slow us down? Would you guard us from anything that could be impressive? It's not because I think big churches are bad. I think big churches are great. It's just I don't trust my own heart. Are you better than me? I'm sure you're totally different. But sadly... Paul is nowhere near done tearing the Corinthians open. So look at verse 8. It says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you, and would that you did reign, so that we might share in the rule with you. Verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. 
Verse 11, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endured. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. So um, do I really need to like spell this one out and talk about it and comment on this one? I mean... I will continue to argue until God takes my breath away that anybody who thinks that the Bible is boring is proving that they've never actually read it. Paul is harsh here, right? He's incredibly harsh. Oh, but I thought Paul was writing this letter with a tone of love. You know, isn't he the tender pastor here? I mean, can he really shift to biting sarcasm that quickly? Yeah. Yeah, he can. And moreover, I... I really think that the best pastors know how to pull that out of their tool bag whenever it's necessary. Paul draws a clear line, a clear line here between how the Corinthians tried to present themselves to the world, tried to see themselves in the world, and how the apostles are currently being treated by the world. Draws a clear line between those two realities. You want to be this, but this is how God's people are actually being treated. He points out that, that those that God is actually using powerfully are seen by the world as fools. They are held in disrepute. Just to give you a couple of things he mentions here. They're, they're often hungry. They're, they, they suffer persecution. They're slandered and are men like, they're, they're like men sentenced to death, he says. They're on death row. When the world hears them preach the folly of the cross, they are not merely rejected for that preaching. They are treated like scum and the refuse of all things for it. So an incredibly important question needs to to be answered. I think it demands to be answered. If the Corinthians aren't experiencing at least some of that, what exactly are they preaching what exactly are they preaching? Like, if, they don't, if they don't experience any of those things, maybe there's a giant problem in the midst. Now don't hear what I'm, I'm not saying because this, this idea can be definitely overstated. There, there are people uh, in the history of the church that have tried to argue that persecution is an automatic marker for faithfulness. And so if persecution isn't there, then it means you're not being faithful. But I don't think that's necessarily true. Sometimes if everybody despises you, it's maybe because you're a jerk and you deserve it. That's sometimes what persecution is. Oh, but hear me clearly. If a foolish cross naturally earns contempt, hear me on this. If a foolish cross naturally earns contempt and everybody around you who doesn't know Jesus thinks that you're the most wonderful person in the world, it might just be because they don't see much of the cross in you. It might. It very well might. Paul sets the faithful up over and against what the Corinthian church is so desperately trying to achieve for themselves, so desperately trying to chase after, and they are not the same thing at all. They're not even close to the same thing. The Corinthians are working their tails off to be seen as respectable, to be seen as wise, to be seen as worthy of honor by those who are supposed to be operating on a worldview entirely different from theirs. Their worldview doesn't look anything at all like God's kingdom. 
And again, don't mishear me. It can be overstated. There are certainly times when a cultural respectability and the values of God's kingdom aren't in different galaxies, all right? That, that's not always the case. There are times when, when doing what God calls his people to do is going to be seen by those outside of the kingdom as a good thing. Paul argues uh, in Romans that, that, that the human heart still has shadows of eternity written on it, that sometimes the Gentiles do what the law requires, Right? And so it's, it's not, they're not mutually exclusive. They're not always opposites of each other. They're not always polar opposites. They, so sometimes doing what God requires of us is seen by those outside the kingdom as a really good thing. Sometimes living consistently with God's kingdom will be seen as respectable by those outside of the kingdom. But those are exceptions to the rule, not the norm. Not the norm. And eventually... Church family, eventually we need to figure out which kingdom is more advantageous to live in. You don't get to claim citizenship of both kingdoms. You're either a citizen of one or a citizen of another living as an expat. The Lord hasn't left that door open to his people. And so in verse 14, Paul says this. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 16, I, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So, so Paul backs off of the biting tone here, right? But his concern, it, it's just as firm. It, now that he's got their attention, he, he reveals his, his motive and its admonishment. It's a warning. He says, you've got lots of guides. You've got lots of people who attempt to, to be authorities on where you should go and how you should get there, but what you need, what you need is a father. You need someone who will love you more than himself, who will put in the hard work and do the hard things that are necessary to see you succeed long term. Good fathers, I don't know if you've noticed this, but good fathers, they don't mince words. They tell you what you need to hear. We can maybe say it this way, they are attentive stewards. They pay attention and they step in to, to act when necessary, right? Good fathers watch closely. They, they train their child up for a better day. They apply discipline when necessary. They apply correction when necessary. Whenever it's called for, good fathers celebrate with you when there are things that are worthy of celebration. But the more I thought about this about it this week, the more I got to thinking that the best thing good fathers do is they set the example. They set the example. They don't merely teach, they show. And so Paul says, imitate me. Imitate me. And the more thought that you give to that reality, the scarier that reality becomes. Right? Dad, do you think it's intimidating that your son tries to be just like you? My son this week changed his favorite color three times because I told him that was my favorite color. That's a scary moment. It's a scary burden. Trying to be the model of Christian faithfulness for a young church, though, a lot scarier. It's a lot scarier. 
but like the best dads always do. Paul steps in and says, I'll own that responsibility. I got it. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's scary. I'll own it. I know it's hard, but I will be the one to carry the mantle for you. I think this is the best kind of good dad move. Paul says, I'm not there with you in person right now, but I'm sending Timothy for that purpose. I trained him. I I brought him up. He's going to hang out with you in my place until God allows me to come to you myself. So follow him like you would follow me. And then in verse 18, Paul says this. Some are arrogant. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? So it seems like one of the critiques that was leveled against Paul um, in Corinth was that his letters were always strongly worded. But you know, whenever he, he actually showed up in person, he walked a little more meekly. Um, Whenever he was in town, he was a little more docile. And, and you seem to see this play, argument play out in, in 2 Corinthians as well. And so he's likely speaking here, I think, to a specific charge from his opponents that, that while, he walked, while he talked a big game, uh, maybe he wouldn't actually show up. Maybe he wouldn't be brave enough to actually come to town uh, like, like he claimed he would. And the more bellicose among the Corinthians were pushing back against his authority, right? And they, they, they didn't just challenge his authority, they... They challenge his resolve. But Paul doubles down here and he says, no, I'm coming. In fact, I'm coming soon. If God allows me, I'll be there as soon as I can. And we will see on that day if you're nothing but talk or if the power of God actually accompanies your heavy-handed rhetoric. So he says, so you go ahead and decide before I get there if you want me to show up with a rod of correction or if you want me to show up with a spirit of gentleness. I'll let you make that call. But it's going to be one or the other. You need to go ahead and choose carefully right now. I love you, and I will not allow you to continue to walk in disobedience like this. Paul knows their idol. He knows it backwards and inside out. He goes straight after it. Pride. And that pride is... It's going to go on to infect their understanding of a long list of issues. Paul's, Paul's just getting warmed up, right? And, and, and you and I, as we walk through this letter together, we're just getting started in this letter. But these are issues that we're going to have to wait until January to dig into. So we're going to shut it down for now and come back later. What about this morning? How do we respond to this letter? You know, we respond to God's word today. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I, I, think, I think you can respond to Jesus. I think you respond by meeting him. The, the Bible teaches that we are all by default, or Paul calls us the natural man. We are separated from God because of our sin, relationally separated from God because of him. He is good and righteous, and, <laughs> and we aren't, like at all. Not even close, and so we deserve his wrath. And, but the Bible teaches that God is also rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love. And so how can he be both? How can he be both wrathful and loving? That doesn't make sense to us. You're right. It's the upside-down reality of the cross. 
What sounds foolish to the world is really the power of God to save. And so Jesus came, he put on flesh, and he lived among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as a sinless, a perfectly sinless substitute to pay the debt that was owed for your sin. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now, as the conquering king, the one who conquered sin and death forever, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. Repentance is, is a turning away from your sin and a turning to God. Faith is a trust in Jesus alone to, to save you. Why? Because he is infinitely trustworthy. And you can do that this morning. You can put your trust, your faith in Jesus. You, you don't need me, but man, I'd love to be helpful to you. I'll be down front here in a moment. We're going to pray and and sing again, and I'll be down front if anybody wants to talk about it. If you're watching us online right now, you can use the, the contact form linked in the video. Man, I'd, I'd love to get back to you. You don't, you don't need me, but I'd love to, to, to be helpful to, to you. If you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week, right? We, we repent of sin and we lean into His goodness. The, the good things that we can point to in our church the good things that we can point to in our lives, in our families, in our careers, whatever. Who do you give the credit to those things for? I, listen, I have no doubt that you're smart enough to know the right spiritual public answer. I'm sure there were a lot of people in Corinth that had the same answer. But when you're really pressed on it, how much, how much credit do you actually still cling to? What do you find yourself desperately hoping to be noticed about? I got a list of things for me. And maybe there aren't, maybe there aren't many of those things for you, though. Maybe there are none of those things for you. That, I think that would be a good thing. Maybe then your response this morning is to step more into that follow me as I follow Christ role. Can we be honest? Like, the larger church culture, it's, it's kind of hurting for good moms and dads spiritually. We need more of those. Maybe God is calling you to step into that role this morning. We, we've got a lot of orphan kids running around in the church that might be quick to point to guides that they like. Those guides are just as immature as they are. So what would happen if you owned the responsibility to stand up and say, follow me as I follow Christ? Think it might change some things. Maybe you need to respond in some other kind of way this morning. Maybe it's by being obedient to Jesus in baptism, or maybe it's by formally journeying, joining this, this church family, or, or maybe God's calling you to say yes to some kind of new opportunity of service or, or mission here this morning. But, but whoever you are and however God is calling you to respond to his word today, let's, let's do that together right now. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for 1 Corinthians 4. For biting sarcasm when it's time to get our attention. Thank you for being a God who uses those means because sometimes I need those means. God, would you call out the pride? Would you call out the arrogance in us? Maybe even things that those around us would say are healthy and good, but at the end of the day, we, 
we put the credit for those good things in the wrong lap. Convict us of sin. In your goodness, convict us of sin and draw us deeper into relationship with you, deeper into dependence upon you, deeper into awe of you. Would you raise up the mature in our body to be people worthy of following? Would you take all of us immature folk and Give us eyes to see how desperately we need it. Build your church by it here. For the glory of your name alone. Father, for those in here who don't know you, would you open eyes to see you right now? Give them ears to hear, hearts to know. Draw men and women into your kingdom in this moment. Whether in person or watching on a screen right now, you're big enough to do both. So do it. For the glory of your name, make your kingdom a little bigger this morning. Show us how we can be helpful. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.